hey folks, welcome back to another great episode. This is actually going to be a combination of an episode for our Property Profits Real Estate Podcast and our How to Raise Capital 101 show as well, because today's special guest, Mr. Howard Klein Esquire, and this gentleman can legitimately use Esquire at the end of his name because he is a lawyer. He is a mediator. He's an arbitrator. He's been in this business especially around real estate investing for a long time. In fact, I think, Howard, this is dating you a little bit, my friend, but you started back in the 70s. At the time we're recording this, it's 2023. So you got a couple of couple of decades there, here or there, of experience under your belt. So Howard is a very, very experienced, not just lawyer, but real estate-focused lawyer. He's been doing this for decades. He's worked with big companies, with small companies, with individual real estate investors, you name it, he's seen a lot of it. In fact, Howard has been the host and founder of the CRE radio and TV shows since 2010. So he's been teaching and training and, and talking with people about real estate investing and legal matters for a long time. So today we got a special treat for you guys because a big question I've had come up over and over again is, Dave, what happens when the party's over? How do we split up? How do we break up with joint venture partners or investor partners if it's just not working out? They want out of the deal early. We want to get them out of the deal early or whatever happens. And we just have to break things up. So that's what we're going to be discussing today with Mr. Howard Klein. Howard, welcome to the shows. Well, thank you very much, Dave. It's a pleasure to be on here. All right, my friend. So let's dive into this first things first. Maybe some definitions, because thankfully, most of us listening to this or watching this haven't had to go to court with investors or joint venture partners or what have you. But we've heard horror stories. We've heard about things going wrong. And we hear things like litigation and arbitration and mediation. And that's a lot of shuns in there. And maybe we don't really know what the heck it actually all means. So can you maybe just give us a layman's definition of the what these different things are and, and how they apply? Well, why don't we start with litigation? That's uh, a scary I one. A, That's yeah, a scary yeah, that one. is a scary one. It's yeah. scary to be a party in, you know, a plaintiff or a defendant. And it's even scary to be a witness in a litigation. Litigation is basically where two people or companies, two parties, two sides of a dispute decide that they're going to file a lawsuit and go to court. And the court process is kind of established and set, and there are all kinds of things that are part of it. That's litigation. It tends to be painful. It tends to be expensive. And it tends to be very time-consuming. And what I tell most of my clients, as an attorney, I tell them that at some point in time, it's just going to be so distracting that you're going to want to get out of it. Mm -hmm. All right. Sometimes we go all the way to trial or we get to the doorsteps of the courthouse. So this is where we hear things getting settled out of court. Is that kind of where where that expression comes from? And I yeah, I would say over 90% of the lawsuits in which I've represented one party or another, 
they get settled before you actually start trial. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, literally, you walk into court at the time of trial. It's like both parties are playing chicken. And they finally get to the point, and who's going to blink? But by that point, it's totally distracting because it's usually a year and a half to two years. And it's expensive. Yeah. It is so interesting, Howard, because a lot of us see like big name people going to court, going through trials. I mean, the the one that just kind of pops to my mind is, you know, President Trump, for crying out loud, before he was a president, just when he was a, a regular real estate mogul slash billionaire, he seemed to be in court all the time, being sued, suing people. It, it just seemed like he kind of thrived on that, maybe even to... to to today, who knows? But it it just seemed like that was part of the process. But it sounds like the vast majority of cases don't even make it to a judge, to a jury, to to that. Well, kind of his the vast majority of his cases don't get that far. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example, if I might. I was general counsel for a supermarket chain in San Diego. It was a good sized regional supermarket chain, and the the founder and principal of the company, his attitude was, I don't want people to fake slip and falls. I don't want all these lawsuits and, you know, claims that there was ketchup on the floor or there was a grape on the floor or whatever they're going to come up with. So I want in the county of San Diego, everybody to know that it's going to be a battle if you file a suit. Mm. And he wanted to discourage plaintiff's attorneys. So we took this position, you're going to get into a fight. And that was one of the reasons why he liked me, because in my younger years, I was an absolute fighter. You just didn't mess with me. Mm -hmm. But that didn't mean we weren't going to settle. We just put up with the fight. And frankly, that's my attitude on Donald Trump's fights. He can afford to spend a whole bunch of money by itself discourages people from getting into a fight with him. And then they know if they get into a fight, it's going to be a fight. So. And and he's got some pretty well, he's got some pretty experienced lawyers on his team. So chances are he's going to be able to help batch up. Okay. So that's litigation. So we also hear about arbitration. What does that mean? Well, arbitration is, in essence, litigation, but not with the court. It's a pri- you use a private arbitrator, and there are a lot of advantages to that. One is it tends to be much faster. And when you're talking about time, time is money. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoken from a lawyer, time is money. So if you'd like to get a dispute resolved in a similar fashion of that you would in court, but much faster and likely much less expensive, you basically can go to an arbitrator. You hire an arbitrator who might have a subject matter experience. They will handle it. Now, a lot of them are handled online. Hmm. So you avoid expenses of attorneys flying cross country, the depositions, if there are, depending upon the value of the case and what institution you work with, there's very little discovery, which I might have to explain. 
And then you basically get to the hearing and the arbitrator then enforces, you know, gives a judgment, so to speak. It's really called a ruling, a final ruling. And then if the parties need to have it enforced, they take it to the court and the judge says, okay, sheriff, go out and attach the accounts, et cetera. So it's handled in that fashion. And again, it can be, I mean, there are some advantages, other advantages. One is if you don't want to go in front of a jury, there's no jury in an arbitration. Right. And it can be private. So if you don't want the whole world to know about it, then you could do it in arbitration. It is not automatically private, but if it's contained in an agreement, you can agree that nothing can be disclosed in it. So there are some very significant advantages to it. Very much streamlines the whole process as well. That's yes. That's, yeah. That's Sometimes. Awesome. Not hopefully. not necessarily, but it's intended. Hopefully it's intended. Yeah. To. All right. Now, what about mediation? Well, mediation is very much different from arbitration. In both mediation and arbitration, you have a neutral third party. It doesn't take a position for either side. And they're all different kinds of mediations. The the one that I tend to practice the most is called facilitative mediation. And that's a situation where I don't make any decisions for anybody. I don't put together any agreements, although I might help them write the agreement that the parties come together. I try to get them to communicate, maybe consider things that they hadn't previously considered. I try to avoid making any suggestions. And basically, particularly where there's high emotions, we try to separate the people from the issue. Mm. So, you know, sometimes people go into mediation and they go, I'm just not going to let them win. Right. Uh, and we try to separate that <laughs> and get them to look at it in a much more objective fashion. And there are tools of the trade and, and attitudes that we take. And that could be the least expensive. Sounds like a good route for a lot of people to go down. So. Again, most of our viewers, our listeners are what I call mom and pop real estate investors. They're not huge syndicators. They're not Donald Trump's by any stretch of the imagination. However, they are working with joint venture partners or investors of some sort, private capital, private investors for doing their deals from time to time. And those kind of relationships can go sour. So what would you recommend that people should really look at before they even get into this kind of a working relationship with a joint venture partner or an investor? Well, I would say that in my many years of practicing law and now mediating and arbitrating, I was over 50% of the disputes that we're looking to resolve arose because people didn't do adequate due diligence. And, and this is like in every aspect of business relationships, anywhere from leases, purchases, and sales. Not just business, any relationship. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Abs absolutely. Now, I will say, depending upon the value of the investments, since we're talking about partners and investments, if the 
you will measure the amount of due diligence. You, you do a reasonable amount of due diligence, depending upon what the risks are and, and what the investment in, whether it's time or money, et cetera. But for the most part, people just either don't do any due diligence or they do very little due diligence. They get into bed with someone that they shouldn't have. Now, I'm not going to talk about how many times I've gotten into bed that with someone that I shouldn't have, <laughs> both yeah, figuratively this, this and literally. show, Howard. <laughs> but, okay, well, you know, let's, they, let's look at an example, if you don't mind. And this might sure. make, it'll make it a lot more vivid for myself and probably the viewers as well. So let's look at a typical joint venture arrangement for a small deal with a, a real estate investor. So you've got the the operating partner. Let's say they're doing a single family home burr deal where they're going to buy a property. They're going to renovate it. They're going to you know put in a secondary suite, something like that. So they're going to get some bank financing, but they're going to bring on a joint venture partner whose primary role is to bring in the down payment money, perhaps even the renovation money and qualify for the financing or help qualify for the financing. And the idea is that, you know, they're going to share the profits on this kind of a deal. So let, let's just use that as an example. So we've got the the working partner and we've got the money partner. Kind of walk us through due diligence from both perspectives, if if you don't mind, Howard. Yeah, and it's equally important from both perspectives. Yeah, you really, from the perspective of the investor, you really know want to know what the history is, what kind of projects they've done in the past, what kind of relationships they've had in the past, how those relationships have ended. So you want to know what their experience is, just not well. They've developed a dozen properties. Well, they may have developed a dozen properties, but maybe they lost five of them. And then you want to know what were the circumstances, because if they lost five properties, maybe the circumstances had nothing to do with them themselves. Mm -hmm. Have they had any other prior lawsuits? And uh, what were the other prior agreements? The fact so, that, so how would how would the investor even find this out besides through the 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 operating partner? How how would they do this kind of due diligence? Well, there are a couple of ways. One, you can do title searches. Mm-hmm. You can do you can search online whether or not they've been involved in lawsuits. If they've been in a mediation or arbitration and they had an agreement to keep it private, that might be a little bit difficult. But you you need to start one by asking them, mm-hmm. you know, and it's helpful to see if they started out with that. Here are the deals that I've done in the past. Here are the properties, the locations. So at that point in time, you can get enough information. If you're investing $5,000 and you're worth $100 million, you're not even going to go that far. If you're investing you know, $200,000 and you own $200,000 a year, you know, and it's a substantial portion of your spendable assets, Mm -hmm. then you're going to do more due diligence. So there are a number of different ways we can do asset reports, hire a professional, or you, you can even do stuff online that'll give you clues. I use a professional private investigator. And depending upon the the situation, that investigator will 
there's such a history mm. of everybody involved now on the internet and records that it, it's difficult to hide things. If they don't have any record, that's a red flag. Mm. And the same thing would hold true for the operating member, the general partner, uh, so to speak, because you want to know what the history, what their history is of investing. I would be wary of someone who doesn't have a significant investment history. And if they do, I would want to know what it was, what the relationships were. There's a whole series of questions that you can get into and ask and allow each party to make the decision. Is this going to be a good partner one way or the other? Right. So, again, in these kind of situations, quite often the operating partner is friend or relative of the joint venture partner. And especially at the beginning stages, those are the only people they're going to, you know, they know, like, and trust the the person enough to invest with them. So any quick tips under, under those kind of circumstances about doing due diligence or, or making sure that, that everybody's on the same page right from, from the get go. Wow, that's another fantastic idea. Hold on to that thought for a sec. We'll be right back. Now, are you a real estate investor who's ran out of cash or credit to grow your portfolio? Are you looking to grow your portfolio using other people's money and raising capital? Well, I want to show you how to raise six figures or more in six weeks or less at my upcoming Investor Attraction Workshop. You can get your ticket and find out all about it at InvestorAttractionWorkshop.com. We're going to spend a full day taking a deep dive into this roadmap that I've used to raise millions for my deals, and I've helped other people just like you cumulatively raise hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for their deals as well. So again, you can check that out at InvestorAttractionWorkshop.com. And as a loyal listener to the podcast, you'll get 50% off your ticket when you use the discount code PODCAST. That's right, discount code PODCAST at InvestorAttractionWorkshop.com. See you at the next workshop. Well, a lot of initial investments, people are beginning, go to family and friends. Yeah. My personal, I have a personal aversion to that. And I put together a few businesses on my own and I'm very uncomfortable asking anyone I know, you know, to invest money because I don't know if it's going to be successful or not. I believe that it will be, but I'd hate to injure someone that I know it's just too close to home. Yeah. And it's it's a challenging situation, Howard. Of course, it's the catch-22. Like if somebody's just getting started with raising capital, yeah, you know, wave the magic wand. It'd be great to bring on an accredited investor with tons of experience and all that kind of stuff. But here's the reality. No accredited investor in the right mind is going to in- invest with this newbie capital raiser. So they don't usually have much choice if they want to get rolling, if they want to expand. That's right. They have to start out with family and friends, people that already know them and like them and trust them. So that's kind of a given at the beginning stages. So given that circumstance, what advice would you give people to make sure that you're entering into something like this with everybody's eyes wide open and realistic expectations and preferably avoiding conflict down the road? Well, I think one, hire a competent lawyer, mm-hmm. you know, that- Make sure the other person has their own independent legal right, advice. Right, yeah. that have 
lawyers that have good business sense, not just lawyers. That, who that's, can... that's tough to find sometimes. No, it, yeah. it really isn't. It really okay. isn't because I mean, there, yeah, there are lawyers who sometimes focus on I'm going to protect my client's rights. And, you know, they're basically loss mitigation experts and they don't pay a lot of attention to how much money can be paid, et cetera. I think it generally takes a lawyer a lot of experience. So the first thing is, you know, hire a good lawyer to advise you. All right. The second thing is if you're going to enter into an agreement, have a really good contract. If it's real estate, it's got to be in writing. But there are a lot of other contracts that are not in writing. I can't overemphasize, you know, the good business sense for lawyers. It, it it may have taken me a few years before I got into this mindset. But I had, for one of the companies I was in, I was doing their real estate all over the country. I was the director of real estate and general counsel. And the... Uh, principal of the company, the CEO, his attitude is let's open up locations all over the country. Let's get it going. And the first deal, I was just having the most difficult time with a landlord in New Orleans. And I was so intent on protecting the company from getting into something stupid. He finally came to me and he said, every minute that we're not open, we're losing money. So I began to develop the attitude that, gosh, you know what? My client isn't hiring me to kill the deal. Right. We got to find a lawyer like that right. locally for, for our own deals. Any quick tips on how to find that kind of a lawyer and not waste your time with deal killers? You got to interview. Yeah. Or it's usually word of mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm. you hear about people on the internet or advertising or stuff like that. But again, you're always looking to the past history. Yeah. You know, and I really don't know how to do that. I don't know how you choose a lawyer. Fortunately, I haven't gotten involved in too many of my own lawsuits, but it's not easy. It's yeah. not easy to choose the right lawyer. But again, I would say the vast in business circumstances, the vast majority of time, it's from a referral from someone else. Or if you know somebody that's a good lawyer already. So, I mean, I've had clients going back 30 some odd years. So and they don't use me for everything. They use me for certain things. Yeah, definitely. So I was going to move on to the contract part of it. Yeah, please. Yeah. And the contract part of it. And this is. This is the dicey part for an attorney. You, a lot of the more sophisticated investment contracts are volumes. Yeah. You know, and those can be problematic. As an attorney and as an investor or partner, you've really got to anticipate all these problems in advance. And where it gets really dicey is you anticipate so many things. You go from, well, I've had this experience and things have gone awry. So we need to put something into the contract that, you know, takes care of that. And for an experienced lawyer, I could put in volumes worth of information. For me as an attorney, 
I discuss it with the client and then discuss what's the likelihood. And if we put too much stuff in, it's going to be so burdensome and it could actually make things more vague and ambiguous. Mm. So there's kind of this yeah, balancing act. Yeah, there's a balancing act that people have to pay attention to, but you do have to anticipate two key things. One is most of the investment agreements that I've seen, they have a an exit plan. You know, we're going to sell in five years, we're going to sell in 10 years or whatever it is. And it's kind of laid out, but it's in anticipation. Right. And the managing partner is going to want as much flexibility as possible. And the investor wants as little flexibility, except to the extent that there may be a cash call. And we see a lot of problems, ultimately, when there's a cash call and the investor or the other partner is not prepared to make the investment or doesn't want to. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is a sinking hole. I don't want to throw any more money in. We've seen that situation tons of times. So, you know, you can put all kinds of provisions in there in anticipation of that. And I think that that's appropriate. So what's going to happen if all of a sudden the partnership begins to run out of money? And it's not necessarily because the managing partner mismanaged everything. Right. Sometimes the economy just does stuff like that. So these are the kind of things that you need to anticipate and, and that need to go into the agreement. Now, I like to throw in a word where it's appropriate that not every lawyer agrees with me on this. I like to use the word reasonable because who the heck knows what reasonable is. Right. But in my experience, if you've got two sophisticated people, an experienced and sophisticated operator and a sophisticated, experienced investor, it forces them, they they know that, well, what does reasonable mean? So it forces them to make efforts on their part to resolve the issue. Now, they can bring in lawyers. That's perfectly fine. They could even bring in a mediator to help them work through what reasonable is or how to resolve the problem. And and it's perfectly fine. You don't have to be at DEFCON 5 to finally bring in a mediator. But I like to use the word reasonable, not in every instance, but it, it really, if you have an inexperienced person and they're not communicating very well, anyhow, using the word reasonable becomes problematic. Yeah, that's that makes sense. So, Howard, let's say we're we're partway through a deal and things start to unravel with our joint venture partner or our investor. What steps would you recommend from a practical standpoint to resolve the issue and kind of like in what order? So what should we try first? And then if that doesn't work, what do we try next? And what do we try after that? Well, first, I think the agreement should have a what they call alternative dispute resolution or ADR, either a mediation provision and or a arbitration provision. And there really has to be a lot of thought that goes into it. It's not so simple just to say, okay, the parties arbitrate. 
or the parties mediate. There are all kinds of triggering effects that people have to pay attention to. So if the parties at the time that they enter into the contract want to resolve things without having to go to court, they need to think all of that out and put in a decent ADR provision. If they don't, even if they have a dispute, they can also mediate and arbitrate if they later agree. Now, there is a group of mediators who insist that you should do mediation first. If you get the parties to agree pretty quickly, particularly if there's an ongoing relationship, right. you want it to be durable. Early mediation is probably the least expensive way to proceed. It basically gets it's, the it's parties. It's kind of like marriage counseling. Yes, it is exactly. <laughs> it is exactly like I've seen emotions in business breakups that are just as bad as marital dissolutions. It's a highly emotional thing and people take it personally. So mediation is a really good process to start. I think that the parties really need to give themselves an opportunity to work things out, particularly if, say, you're two years into a deal that really should take 10 years. Right, exactly. You, you need an ongoing relationship. If if you can't mediate or you can't resolve it, then I would strongly recommend arbitration because it's, as I said, generally less expensive, depending upon the amount that's in dispute or the issues, it is likely a beneficial alternative. I, I mean, get, let me give you an example. If you wanted to, I had mentioned discovery. You know, discovery, I might send out a set of interrogatories and ask the other party to answer them so that I have information to help prepare myself for a case. And invariably, the other party just kind of blocks it. They do everything they can not to give me anything they can. And then we get into all of these fights. And then I have to file a motion to have the court order them to give me the information I want. That alone can take five or six months in wow. today's court. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, not, just, not just that, but how much does that cost? Like just in oh, legal that's where all, That's where most of the cost of litigation is. So if I'm the arbitrator, you basically can ask the other party for information. This is in the more sophisticated ones. If they don't want to give it, you pick up the phone and give me a call. You know, I'll either try to resolve it on the telephone or I'll say, give me a brief and let's have a hearing on it next week. Rather than five or six months. For no, me, I got so frustrated in court over that process is, you know, let's have this gamesmanship. And judges. A colossal waste of time. Colossal oh, waste yeah, of time. Yeah. Yeah. So Howard, I don't know if Howard, I answered your question. You did. I think you did beautifully. And time flies when we're having fun. So if people want to connect with you, find out more about you, what should they do? Well, they can call me at 702 706 4433. I am located in Las Vegas. I have a law office in uh, California. 
But most of my time now is spent mediating and arbitrating. And uh, you could go to www.tkgadr.com, where I have a series of videos and articles and whatnot to help you prepare for the best mediation or arbitration you can you can have. Perfect. We'll make sure we've got those in the show notes. Howard, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you very much, Dave. And why don't you pick up the phone and give me a call and we can discuss, you know, my interview with you. That sounds good. All right, everybody, take care. And we'll talk to you on the next episode. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you. Well, hey there, thanks for tuning into the Property Profits Podcast. If you like this episode, that's great. Please go ahead and subscribe on iTunes. Give us a good review. That'd be awesome. I appreciate that. And if you're looking to attract investors and raise capital for your deals, then I'm going to invite you to get a complimentary copy of my newest book right back there. There it is. The Money Partner Formula. You can get a PDF version at InvestorAttractionBook.com. Again, InvestorAttractionBook.com. Take care.